Welcome back to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. You are listening to one of a series of lectures given by Caitlin Carl during our summer study through the Book of Mark. For Caitlin's lecture slides and additional study resources for the Book of Mark, please visit DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash Mark resources. open with prayer. Sovereign Lord, we come before you tonight eager to know and to understand your holy word. Reveal to us in this next hour what you would have us to know. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us hearts of good soil ready to receive your truth. Many of us, O oh Lord, myself included, have had long trying days. Would you focus our minds here in this moment and would you graciously bless us with your truth this evening? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, and may you be high and lifted up tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So the storm is really going to add some potency to the parables and stories tonight. Um, but let's start by saying our memory verse together. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark ten forty five. All right. So I'm going to start this evening with a quick overview of what we did, what we talked about last week, and then we'll look at our text for tonight. And I've divided that into four sections: opposition, discipleship, kingdom of God, and Jesus is King. So last week we saw Jesus's way prepared by John the Baptist. Then Jesus was baptized and tempted. After these events, Jesus began his ministry, the main emphasis of which was to preach and proclaim, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We then looked at Jesus' authority over man, evil forces, illness, sin, and the Sabbath. All right, so... In the final verse of chapter 2, Jesus declares his authority over the Sabbath. Evidently, the Pharisees didn't like this answer and proclamation of authority by Jesus because chapter 3 opens with the Pharisees sitting and waiting for Jesus to again break Sabbath regulations so that they can accuse him. You almost get the sense that maybe they even planted that man with the withered hand in the synagogue just to see what Jesus would do. Notice here the rather rapid escalation of opposition to Jesus. So in chapter 2, when the paralyzed man is lowered through the roof and Jesus tells him that his sins are forgiven, the scribes that are sitting there question and they accuse him of blasphemy, but only in their hearts. They don't speak their concerns aloud. Next, when Jesus is seen dining with tax collectors and sinners, they muster enough courage up to ask his disciples about his behavior. And soon after that, when Jesus' disciples pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath, the, the Pharisees are emboldened enough to question Jesus himself. And now, as we begin chapter 3, they're actively looking to accuse him. Jesus doesn't shy away, though. 
When he sees the man with the withered hand, Jesus calls him to come over and poses a question to the Pharisees. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? When the Pharisees do not respond, Mark ascribes some strong emotions to Jesus, writing that he looks at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. These men are Jesus' opponents. They're the ones who will ultimately cry out for his blood, and yet Jesus grieves over their hard-heartedness, over their refusal to budge from their self-righteousness and accept the truth of Jesus' words and identity and turn and be saved. How often are we grieved over the hard-heartedness of those who oppose Jesus? Again, Jesus here demonstrates his authority over illness as he tells the man to stretch out his hand. This time, Jesus doesn't even touch the disfigured man. He simply stretches out his hand and it's restored. Well, now the Pharisees have seen enough. Rather than seeing the miraculous healing that just occurred before their very eyes, they can only see a violation of one of their rules. The opposition ramps up one more notch as they immediately leave the synagogue and conspire with the Herodians how to destroy Jesus. The plot to end Jesus' life has begun. But it's not Jesus' time yet for the cross. So Jesus withdraws from the synagogue and from organized Judaism in general. And we will see him enter the synagogue only once more in this gospel. As his opposition grows, however, so does Jesus' fame. Jesus and his disciples make their way to the sea, where they are followed by the now virtually ever-present great crowd. And this crowd is coming from everywhere. Some of them, like the ones listed coming from Idumea, have traveled over 100 miles to get to Jesus. And remember, this is before the era of cars, so they likely traveled that distance on foot or on the back of an animal. It would have taken many days to make this journey. The crowd was so great, and Jesus' reputation for healing so grand that the great crowd pressed and pressed, trying to touch the healer. He had to instruct his disciples to ready a boat so that he could avoid being crushed. I think of the scenes we often see at maybe Walmart on Black Friday, or the way that a coach or a star player has to be surrounded by police after a big game. They want so badly to be close to Jesus that they push and they shove. Do we pursue nearness to our Lord with the same vigor that this crowd does? The same way that maybe we go after a great deal or a favorite public figure, Or maybe it's something else for you. So what are you intently pursuing tonight with more vigor than you are pursuing Jesus? Is it your career? A more well-rounded household? Better health? These things aren't bad things, but when they become the thing, we risk dethroning Jesus in our lives and putting something else on his throne. Jesus needs to be the thing in our lives that is our greatest pursuit the thing into which we put more effort than anything else. So ask the Lord to reveal to you tonight what things you have put on the throne in his place, and then ask him to help you pursue him above all else. 
And verse 11 shows us again the authority that Jesus has over the forces of evil as the unclean spirits fall down at the sight of him and rightly proclaim him to be the Son of God. And Jesus continues to order them not to make him known. So we've seen this command from Jesus many times now, that he doesn't want anyone to reveal his true identity. So let's take a second to look at why this might be. The theory behind this tactic of Jesus's actually has a name. It's called the Messianic Secret. Many scholars believe that Jesus's concealment is based in the Jewish expectations of a Messiah. According to many Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah was to come as a king who would usher in the kingdom of God. Consequently, most Jews were expecting a militaristic Christ who would come in, overthrow the Romans, and establish the kingdom of God in its place. They expected political power and fame, but that is not the way that Jesus came. And so Jesus' desire to conceal his identity at this time is twofold. He firstly wants to establish the true nature of the Messiah and replace the incomplete expectations held by the Jews. And he secondly doesn't want the Romans to prematurely seize him because they believe him to be the militaristic king come to overthrow their empire. In this way, the continual crying out of the demons when confronted with Jesus can be seen as another satanic tactic to destroy him. The sooner that Jesus' true identity gets out, the sooner the Romans will silence him and his good news message, thwarting God's rescue plan. In verses 13 to 19 of chapter 3, the scene shifts as Jesus moves to higher ground. And here Jesus calls and appoints 12 men, whom he calls apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus calls these men for companionship, apostleship, and authority. He calls us for the same purposes today. Companionship, he desires a nearness to and a relationship with us. Apostleship, Though we are not one of the 12 apostles, we are given largely the same mission as them. Apostle means one who is sent. And just like the original 12 were sent out with the mission of sharing the gospel message, so too we are called as believers to go out and proclaim the good news. And authority. Jesus gave the apostles his authority as he sent them out. And as believers today, we have the very spirit of God dwelling within us. A helpful resource that you might want to check out is um, a table in your mark packet towards the beginning entitled The Twelve Disciples of Jesus. It gives a little more background information on each of these twelve that Mark names for us here. So Jesus seems to have had a few moments of respite on the mountain while he called the twelve, but when he returns home, he finds the crowd, again surrounding him to the point that he and those with him cannot even His family, hearing of it, doesn't come to his aid or try and grant some relief from the constant bombardment. Rather, they seize him, probably with the intention of taking him back home with them because they think he's out of his mind. Similarly, we see in verse 22 that the scribes are also accusing him of not being in his right mind, accusing him of being possessed by Beelzebul. 
they believe that he is casting out demons not because he has authority over them by virtue of being the very son of God, but instead by the power of Satan. And here we encounter Mark's first use of the word parable. So what is a parable? It's a simple story, word picture, or saying that's used to communicate a moral or spiritual truth. Jesus often spoke in parables, and we'll see more of them tonight. Parables often utilized images that the listener would have been familiar with in order to compare two objects. In these first two parables in Mark, Jesus is responding to the scribe's accusation that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. How can that be, Jesus says in the first parable? Satan cannot cast out himself. If his kingdom of darkness were internally divided, it could not stand. And we've seen clearly in this gospel so far that Satan's kingdom is alive and well here on earth. His unclean spirits still reign in the lives of many. Secondly, Jesus compares Satan to a strong man who must be bound before his house or his kingdom of darkness can be challenged or plundered. And the goods or the people can be set free from his influence. This hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. In verses 28 to 30, um, Jesus alludes to a future time when all sins will be forgiven, even blasphemies uttered against the Christ. He knows this time is coming because it is his coming death on the cross and resurrection from the grave that will make it possible. The exception, however, is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. The person who does this is never forgiven, Jesus says, guilty of an eternal sin. That's scary stuff, right? An unforgivable sin. So what exactly does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, I think our text gives us some clues. First, let's define blasphemy. The dictionary defines it as the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. Next, let's look at a key word in our text, the word for, F-O-R. You could replace this with because, and the final part of the sentence would read this way, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus makes this statement because of what they were saying about the spirit within him. They were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit of God to the power of the forces of evil. So if you're worried that you may yourself have fallen into this sin, do not fear because your worry is the best confirmation that you have not. Those who commit this sin are so hardened in their hearts as to not care whether or not they've sinned in this way. Your care about this matter is your assurance. When someone is so hardened that they begin to see Jesus as the enemy and the work of the Holy Spirit as evil, it's not so much that they are beyond the forgiveness of the Lord, because his forgiveness is for all that will accept it, rather that they are too calloused to ever turn and seek it, and thus will never have it. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This chapter then concludes with Jesus' biological family calling to him while he's probably teaching to a crowd. The crowd informs Jesus that his family is looking for him, and he replies in verses 33 and 34, Who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So we see here another tenet of discipleship. If you are to follow Christ, you will do God's will over and above the will of anyone else, including your own family. What then is the will of God? Well, wouldn't we all like to know? (laughs) But in all seriousness, there are some ways that we can discern his will. One of the first ways that we can do that is by recognizing that the term will of God has two distinct meanings in scripture. So first, it's called his will of decree. This is God's sovereign control over everything that happens. So for example, we have 1 Peter 3, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Or Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The first meaning of God's will tells us that his will cannot be broken. It always comes to pass. Whether we believe in God and his sovereign control over our lives or not, it will happen. And this is not the will that we are trying to discern, according to Mark. In fact, discernment of God's sovereign will, or his will of decree, is not necessarily something God wants us to have. We are not privy to all that the Lord is doing. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, we read that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Some things are secret, and some things are revealed. Which is which is not up to us. But the second meaning of the will of God is his will of command. And this is his will that he commands us to do. It's the will of God that Jesus speaks about here in Mark 3. Some examples from scripture are 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And 1 John 2, 17. And the word is pass- world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's will that we can know and we can choose whether or not we do it. A key element in discerning God's will is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So our minds must be renewed if we are to discern God's will. And our minds are renewed through the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, by the truth of scripture and by prayer. And when our minds are renewed in these ways, we begin to see the things in our lives with the mind of Christ and we can discern our next steps. The Bible is never going to tell us the name of the person we should marry. 
how much money we should budget for groceries this week, or which job offer we should accept. But we can confidently move forward with a decision, praying with a renewed mind for wisdom in applying the truths of God's word to the choice that's before us. Okay, so now we get to chapter four, and almost the entire chapter is one parable after another. The first parable, often called the parable of the sower, is one of the longest, most detailed accounts of a teaching of Jesus that we see in Mark. And since Mark does not often attribute this much time and space to a single story, it's reasonable to think that he thought this particular parable to be pretty important. So let's check it out. We see that Jesus is again teaching beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathers around him. So large, in fact, that he gets into a boat and teaches from the boat while the crowd sits on the shore. He's teaching many things in parables, and in the first parable that we see, he begins, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. So what exactly is a sower? Well, the dictionary definition is this, one who scatters seed over land or earth, etc., for the purpose of growth. So the sower in this parable is going out, he's scattering seed on the ground, and he's looking for it to grow. Now, I'm going to skip over the actual telling of the parable, because Jesus himself actually gives us the meaning of it all, beginning in verse 14. But before he does that, he ends his teaching to the large crowd with this phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. Unless you are deaf, you have functioning ears that allow you to hear when someone speaks. So this does not seem to be what Jesus means by ears to hear. Have you ever been in a sermon and it feels like the pastor is speaking directly to you? Like you can see yourself in every illustration that he uses? Well, that's one of the reasons that Jesus uses parables as a mirror so that we can see ourselves clearly. But while many would see themselves in Jesus's parables and be prompted to examine their hearts, just as many, or perhaps sometimes more, would hear with their ears but only think it was a nice story. They would hear without really hearing, deaf to the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 10, Jesus is now alone with a smaller crowd, the appointed 12 apostles and those around him. And it's at this time that the group asks him about the parables. Jesus replies, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything else is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In Isaiah 6, when this prophecy is originally spoken, it is given to a people who have stubbornly refused to listen to and obey God's word. They had willfully chosen to look and listen without seeing and hearing, effectively cutting themselves off from the means of forgiveness. When we see this word secret, which is often translated mystery as well in scripture, it is referring to something hidden in the past, but now being revealed. One commentator put it this way, the mystery is a divinely disclosed secret, a person or thing which apart from godly revelation could not have been discovered. Here, the secret or the mystery is the manifestation of the reign of God in hearts and lives. If we refuse to listen to and obey God's word, he cannot rule in our hearts and we are cut off from the kingdom. 
Many parables illustrated aspects of the kingdom and the disciples have shown that they have ears to hear because they recognize that the parable is not just a nice story, but something that they need to understand and apply, even if they still lack complete understanding at this moment, as Jesus points out in verse 13. Then in verse 14, he launches into an explanation of the parable. So the sower sows the word, Jesus says. Remember that a sower is one who scatters for the purpose of growth. So this sower is scattering the word and looking for it to produce growth in its hearers. There are four types of soil talked about in this parable, and they each represent human hearts in different states, different levels of receptiveness to God's word, and thus God's kingdom and reign in their hearts. The first type is the path, which isn't even really a type of soil. A path is hard and not conducive to growth, representative of a hard heart that's completely closed to the word. The seed doesn't even slightly penetrate this ground before Satan comes and takes it away, removing any hope for future growth. A heart that remains hard, like a path, will never receive God's word. The second type of soil is rocky. There is soil there, but it is riddled with hard rocks that prevent deep and lasting growth. A plant springs up, if you will, but its root is doomed. It endures for a little while, but when it's tested, it dies. These hearts are soft enough to be receptive to the word, but, and they immediately receive it with joy. But, Jesus says, when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Immediately they spring up, immediately they fall away. There is still too much hardness in this heart for the word to truly take root. The third type of soil is riddled with thorns. The soil itself may even be good and receptive to the sown seed. It's what's sharing the soil with the new seed that poses a problem. The nutrients in the soil go to feeding the thorns instead of the seed, and the seed is unfruitful as a result. This heart is receptive to the word, but instead of putting its energy and time into feeding and growing the word, its focus is on the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. The word is crowded out of this heart, and it proves unfruitful. The final type of soil that Jesus gives us as an example is the good soil. The good soil takes the seed in and allows it to take root and grow. This heart is receptive to the word, just as the previous heart was, but instead of diverting energy to different cares and desires, this heart accepts the word and gives it all of its energy, and it bears fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. In order for a seed to grow and bear fruit, it must be cared for and nourished. Similarly, in order for the word to grow and bear fruit in our hearts, it must be cared for and nourished. Notice that there's no distinction between the amount of fruit that the seed bears. Whether it bears 30, 60, or 100-fold, it is all classified as good soil. We are not called to compare fruit, just to bear fruit. Be diligent to tend your own soil and nourish the word in your own life, and whatever fruit you bear will please your heavenly Father. We see in Jesus' illustration a number of things that are hindrances to the work of the word, and thus God's ultimate reign in our lives. Satan, tribulation or persecution, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. 
Are you struggling in one of these areas tonight? I couldn't help but think of the words of an old hymn as I wrote this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So if the evil one is stealing away your truth tonight, turn your eyes upon Jesus. If tribulation or persecution threaten to pull you away from the truth tonight, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And if the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things are crowding out the Lord's truth in your life tonight, turn your eyes upon Jesus. He is the word, and he is so much greater than anything that might stand in the way of your full commitment to him. Won't you behold your Savior tonight in all of his glory and grace and watch the things of this world grow dim around you? And here's a word of hope about this parable. A path can be worn down. Rocky soil can be rid of its stones and thorns can be weeded out and thrown away. No heart is beyond hope. So whether it's your own heart or someone else's that you're thinking of tonight, don't give up. Keep sowing seed upon seed upon seed. Stay in the word. Allow it to take root and for the Lord to reign supreme in your life. And keep telling the good news to anyone who will listen. And pray for the Lord to provide good, nutrient-rich, miracle-grow hearts ready to receive the word, accept his lordship, and go forth bearing much fruit. Now Jesus goes into another parable, and this one is about a lamp. Remember earlier in verse 11 when we talked about the secret of the kingdom of God? I believe that that's what he's talking about again here. Honestly, I ran across at least three different interpretations of this parable, um, but I'm going to give you the one that seems to me to fit the best. So when a lamp is put on a stand, it lights up all the dark places in a room. And in this parable, the lamp is Christ. And just like a lamp illumines things previously hidden by the dark, Jesus has come to shed light on the secret of the kingdom of God. And again, we hear the refrain, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He then charges them to pay attention to what they hear. Coming right after the previous phrase about having ears to hear, it seems likely that these two hearings are related. The measure refers to a measure of that hearing. The more attentively you listen, or the higher measure of hearing that you give to Jesus' words, the more that you will truly hear, or the higher measure of understanding that you will have. And this act has a compounding effect. The more you understand, the more you understand. This concept is then reiterated in verse 25. For to the one who has understanding, more understanding will be given. And from the one who has not, understanding, even what understanding he has will be taken away. For the one who shuts his ears off to the truth of Jesus's words, he will continually hear less and less until no understanding is left at all. Again, Jesus launches into a parable about the kingdom of God, this time comparing it to a man scattering seed on the ground. Days pass and the man sees that the seed he scattered sprouts and grows, but he doesn't know how it happened. 
In the same way, the fruit of the kingdom of God grows automatically, without human effort. The kingdom of God is powerful in itself. We saw in the parable of the sower the need for hearts that are receptive to the kingdom. And we see here the power of the kingdom to establish itself. But in fact, without the power of God working in the heart of man, no man is able to turn to God in true faith and have a receptive heart. We can have confidence when we go out and sow the seed of the kingdom that it will bear the fruit that it was meant to bear, whether we understand how it works or not. In Isaiah 55:11, we read, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus also teaches here that the kingdom of God is not an all-at-once realization like the Jews were expecting. It will come in phases. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. As God's reign grows and is strengthened in the hearts of men, and they give themselves over more and more to his lordship. And then finally, when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus is speaking in verse 29 about the final judgment, which we read about in Revelation 14. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Victory is sure. The harvest is coming. And then God's reign will be fully revealed in all of its glory. And now Jesus tells yet another parable about the kingdom of God. And again, we see an agricultural image used. This time, it's a mustard seed. And a mustard seed is tiny. The tiniest in all the earth, Jesus says, just like how the kingdom of God is now coming, very unassuming and small. In due time, however, both the mustard seed and the kingdom of God will grow to be larger than any competitor, and they will provide refuge and respite and shelter. And again, we see the importance of hearing come up. As Mark tells us that Jesus spoke many such parables to the people, In fact, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And I personally want to know why Mark didn't record the explanations for all of the parables, like he did for the parable of the sower. (laughs) Okay, so we've seen the importance and the imminence of the kingdom of God through the parables of Jesus, and now we're going to look at how Jesus is the king in this kingdom. So at the end of the day, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go across to the other side. So they leave the crowd behind, they get Jesus into a boat, and they set off. Suddenly, a great windstorm arises, and it's so violent that waves are coming up over the sides of the boat, and it's beginning to fill with water. During all of this, however, Jesus is in the rearmost part of the boat, the stern, and he's fast asleep. What a picture of his humanity. He's exhausted from the day, and he conks out in the back of the boat. This is followed closely, however, by a glorious picture of his deity. 
the disciples wake him up and honestly, it feels like they kind of rebuke him. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? How can you possibly be sleeping when we're all about to die? Don't you care? But of course he does care. In fact, it's because we are perishing that he came in the first place. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But in the midst of this storm, the disciples have overlooked Jesus' deity. And they're desperate as the waves rise up around them. Don't you care, Jesus? And how many times have we said that to the Lord? Lord, don't you see what I'm going through right now? Don't you see that I'm drowning, that I can't take one more blow or I will sink? But look at where the disciples are in this moment. They're exactly where they're supposed to be. Jesus told them to take a boat to the other side, and they obeyed. A storm does not necessarily indicate disobedience to the Lord. Sometimes the Lord leads us into them. So they've obeyed their Lord, and they're now literally right next to him in the boat. They could not be in a safer place. But of course, we don't often see it that way when the waves come. Our hearts are so quick to forget the authority of our Savior. The disciples are quickly reminded, however, as Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the wind and says to the sea, Peace, be still. And they obey. And there was great calm. And so we see that Jesus has authority over nature. And the storm tamer says to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And I don't know about you, but I don't hear a rebuke in Jesus' words here, like when he spoke to the wind and the sea. Rather, I hear genuine love and sorrow. Oh, my brothers, why do you fear? Haven't you seen by now that with me you are safe? That all authority belongs to me and that you can trust me? He speaks the same words to us, sisters, as we weather whatever storm we're in. Oh, my sister, why do you fear? Don't you know that when you're with me, you are as safe as you can possibly be? That I have absolute authority over everything that's going on in and around you and that you can trust me. Jesus' words tell us that faith in the king is the antidote to fear. So what storm are you weathering tonight? Where do you need to remember Jesus' authority? Stop questioning and start trusting. Ask the Lord to grow your faith and to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Interestingly, to Jesus' question, why are you so afraid, the disciples respond in fear. No longer of the storm, but of this one who calmed the wind and the sea with his very words, They've seen a glimpse of his lordship, of his majesty, power, and glory, and it leaves them asking, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? As chapter 5 opens, we see that the group makes it safely to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. As soon as Jesus sets foot on dry ground, immediately a man with an unclean spirit comes to him. We're told that this man lived among the tombs but could not be bound even by shackles and chains and that he was constantly crying out and cutting himself. I'm sure that his appearance was absolutely terrifying 
and I imagine that the disciples are cowering behind Jesus as he approaches. And yet this unrestrainable man runs and falls down at Jesus' feet. And the unclean spirit within the man cries out to Jesus, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He says this because Jesus is telling the spirit to come out. And while the spirit does not respect or have faith in Jesus, he certainly understands that Jesus has absolute authority over him and that he has to obey his words. And so the spirit begs for mercy. He begs not to be sent out of the country, rather into a herd of pigs feeding nearby. And in verse 13, Jesus gives them permission. Notice that the spirits can't move until this moment. And the legion of spirits leaves the man, enters the pigs, and runs the pigs down a steep bank and into the sea where they drown. For a Jew, pigs were an unclean animal, a picture of filth. Perhaps Jesus' actions here, which might seem very strange to us, are symbolic of the work that he has come to do. To take all that is evil and unclean and to do away with it for good. This is a foretaste of the coming kingdom, of God's reign over all creation. But did anyone else find this story a little disturbing? Well, you are not the only one. The herdsmen flee and they tell everyone what they had just witnessed, and people come from all over to see what had happened. They arrive on the scene, and they see Jesus and the formerly possessed man now clothed and in his right mind, and they are afraid. The witnesses to the incident describe what had happened, and the people all beg Jesus to leave. As he's leaving, though, the formerly possessed man begs Jesus to allow him to come so that he might be with him. When Jesus' power is displayed... We can either run to it or we run from it. But in an interesting twist, instead of telling this man to keep quiet about what has happened to him, Jesus does not permit him to join them in the boat, rather instructs the man to go home to his friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for him and how he has had mercy on them. And the man obeys, going and proclaiming in the Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The Decapolis was a group of 10 cities on the Roman Empire's eastern frontier, and it was considered a land of pagans by the Jews in the surrounding areas. This explains the presence of the pigs, which, remember, were unclean, according to Jewish law. And perhaps this is why Jesus sends the newly cleansed man to tell his story. Remember that Jesus didn't want the Jews to know his identity as the Messiah quite yet because of their preconceived ideas about what the coming Messiah would look like and what it would mean for the nation of Israel. These pagans, however, they don't study or follow the Old Testament laws and prophets, and so they would have been largely unaware of what the Messiah was supposed to be. With no conflicting ideas clouding their heads and hearts, these people were ready to hear the words that the man brought about Jesus. So I wonder how often do we, like the Jews, hinder what the Lord might want to show us by holding on so tightly to what we already believe about something? Will you ask the Lord to reveal any areas in your life where you might have a white-knuckled hold on an erroneous belief? And then would you ask him to help you loosen your grip and to take hold of his truth instead? And now we come to the last section in our text tonight, which is really two stories in one. 
The scene opens with Jesus crossing back over the Sea of Galilee. I'm sure the disciples were thrilled to get back in that boat. And again, a great crowd assembles. While Jesus is beside the sea, a ruler of the synagogue comes running up and seeing Jesus falls at his feet. This is significant because most rulers of the synagogue were Pharisees. And if you'll remember, Jesus wasn't very popular with the Pharisees by this point. The man's reaction to Jesus then makes clear the desperation and sincerity of his request. After falling at Jesus' feet, the man implores Jesus, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus goes with him. But here Mark inserts another story. As Jesus is going with the ruler of the synagogue, a great crowd is all around him. And then we're introduced to one specific crowd member, a woman who has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Though perhaps less ostracized than a leper, because her condition was less visibly obvious, she was still considered ceremonially unclean and would have been excluded from temple life and required to inform others around her of her uncleanliness at all times, because if they touched her, they too would be unclean. We read that she had spent her entire livelihood on doctors searching for a cure, and yet instead of being healed, her condition only worsened. Having heard about Jesus, she braves the large crowd in hopes that she can get close enough just to touch his garment, believing that that touch will make her well. Being an unclean woman, and due to the longevity and extremity of her ailment, it's not unlikely that this woman was known within the town. I imagine that she would have hidden herself as much as possible, perhaps with a bulky robe or a hood, hoping to simply sneak up to Jesus, touch his clothes, and slip away again unnoticed. When she touches Jesus' garments, it is exactly as she believed it would be. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt that her body was healed of her disease. How difficult it must have been for her not to exclaim aloud at this moment of the miraculous healing she had just experienced. But Mark records no such reaction. She's probably trying to quietly disappear into the crowd when Jesus perceives that power has gone out of him, and he immediately addresses the crowd. Who touched my garments? His disciples, perhaps with a hint of exasperation, reply, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? I wonder if they were thinking, this is the same guy who calmed the storm with his words and cast out a legion of demons, right? What kind of question is this? But Jesus knows the difference between a brush from the crowd and a touch of belief. Everyone in that crowd was trying to be as close to Jesus as possible, perhaps to have their brush with fame or to see what he would do next. But this woman truly believed that he could heal her, and her touch is distinguishable from all the others. As Jesus is looking around to see who it was, the woman steps forward, her hopes of an unassuming retreat gone, but she knows that she's the one Jesus seeks, and she comes forward in fear and trembling, falls down before him, and tells him the whole story. Jesus doesn't rebuke her, this unclean woman, woman for touching his garment. Rather, he speaks to her in love, calling her daughter. With one touch, this woman went from social outcast to child of God. Daughter, he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Can you imagine how the ruler of the synagogue is feeling at this moment? 
His daughter is at the point of death. Jesus is supposed to be on his way to his house to heal her, but her journey, his journey is halted when someone touches him. Come on, Jesus. You said you would come with me. We have to hurry. What are you doing? Let's go. And as the man stands wringing his hands and waiting, probably impatiently, for Jesus to keep coming, the unthinkable occurs. Someone comes from his house to inform him that it's too late. His daughter has died. There's no reason to bother Jesus anymore. Absolutely crushed by the news, the ruler probably turns to trudge home when he hears Jesus' voice behind him, do not fear, only believe. And again, we see Jesus prescribing faith in the king as the antidote to fear. Jesus invites just three of his disciples to join him as they complete the journey to the ruler's home. Upon arrival, they find a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly, mourning the loss of this ruler's little girl. Jesus enters the house and says to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And the crowd laughs at him. In the parallel passage in Luke 8, we see that the crowd is correct. The girl is truly dead. But to Jesus, death is but sleep. He puts the morning mocking crowd outside and takes the girl's parents and his three disciples with him to see the little girl. And taking her by the hand, Jesus says to her, Talitha, kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And immediately they were overcome with amazement. They've seen him heal. They've seen him cast out demons. They've even now seen him calm a storm with his words. But death, this is an authority beyond anything they've yet experienced. And yet here she stands. The girl moments before dead is now walking around before their very eyes. Jesus has authority over death. And of course, we'll see that realized further in his own resurrection later this summer. And again, we see Jesus coming into contact with that which is unclean. Touching a dead body was grounds for ceremonial uncleanliness, according to Jewish law. But we know that dirt can't rub off on Jesus. It's almost as if he's emphasizing this point because he could have healed the little girl with just a word. We see in John's gospel that Jesus calls his friend Lazarus back from death with a loud voice. And yet he takes this child by the hand, continuing to show that he has come to make clean the unclean, and to usher in the reign of the kingdom of God, a kingdom in which there will one day be no more death. And the chapter ends with Jesus again charging the witnesses to this miracle to not tell anyone. Perhaps this is why he said to the crowd that the girl was just sleeping. And he tells those parents to get her something to eat, which is one of the same proofs that Jesus will use after his own resurrection to show his disciples that indeed he is alive. So, who is Jesus? He's a healer. He's the son of God. He grieves over hard-heartedness and the effects of sin. He calls and he desires us. He's a teller of parables and a revealer of secrets. He's a relative to those who do God's will. He's a teacher. He's merciful. And he has authority over nature, the forces of evil, disease, and death. We also see in this passage many different responses to Jesus. Negatively, we saw people look to accuse him 
destroy him, and the foretelling of the one who will betray him. We saw people think him crazy or possessed, and we saw people fear him and ask him to get away. Positively, we saw people follow him, try to be as close to him as possible, fall down before him, obey him, beg him for mercy, marvel at him, and have faith in him. So how will you respond to who Jesus is tonight? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are humbled by your call to follow you, and we are awed by your majesty as we saw it displayed in these passages tonight. May the truth that we heard here tonight go with us into the week. May it strengthen us for whatever lies ahead. May we continue to seek knowledge and to continue surrendering reign over our lives to you every single day. And may your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, homework for this next session. Uh, Read Mark 6 through 8. Use your weekly tools, prayer, answering the discussion questions, reading multiple times, and annotation. And your new study tool for this week is to compare different translations. To this day, more than 450 English translations of the Bible have been written, so you've got a lot to choose from. Just pick one or two translations, though, other than the ESV, and see how they compare to each other. And you don't need to do this for the entirety of Mark 6 through 8. Choose a smaller chunk, something that's manageable for you. And don't forget to check out Natalie and Jillian's training video on this study tool at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash videos. And we'll see you next week.